This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. You're listening to audio from one of our third Thursday webinars on Parkinson's research. In these webinars, expert panelists and people with Parkinson's discuss aspects of the disease and the foundation's work to speed medical breakthroughs. Learn more about the third Thursday webinars at michaeljfox.org webinars. Thanks for listening. Thank you everyone for joining us. I'm Rachel Dolan, Vice President of Medical Communications at the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research, and I'm your moderator today. Today we're going to be discussing dystonia, which is a movement disorder on its own and a Parkinson's symptom that can cause painful muscle cramping. So let's meet our panelists. Brian Reedy is a retired teacher from Carson City, Nevada. He was diagnosed with Parkinson's at age 51. Welcome, Brian. Thank you. Dr. Aaron Furstimming is an associate professor of neurology at the University of Texas. Hi, Dr. Furstimming. Hi, thanks for having me. And Dr. Christine Kim is an instructor of neurology at Yale School of Medicine. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Kim. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So we've got a lot to get to, so we're going to jump right into it. So let's see what we're going to talk about today. We're going to first start by defining dystonia. We're going to talk about what causes dystonia and the current ways we can treat it. And then we're going to end by talking about ongoing research, what we can do to learn more about dystonia and how we can improve treatments for it. And throughout the hour, we'll try to pepper in your questions, so keep sending those to us. And we'll also spend some time at the end getting to more of your questions. So let's start, as I said, by trying to define dystonia. So Dr. Kim, I'd like to start with you. Can you give us sort of a basic definition of what dystonia is? Yeah, sure. So dystonia, as you mentioned, it can happen both um, in the setting of Parkinson's disease and kind of on its own. Um, in both of those settings, dystonia we really define by kind of what it what it looks like and what the patient experiences in their body. Um, what they experience is prolonged muscle contractions. That can be cramping. It can be uncomfortable. It can also result in abnormal movements, sometimes even shaking of the body part that's affected and kind of strange um, positions of that body part that the person has difficulty controlling. And Dr. Furstimming, I'll turn to you now. Um, and I want to go a little bit into more of what dystonia can look like and be and, and the presentations of it and the different postures and positions, because I think a lot of times people don't recognize that they're experiencing dystonia. Um, so it can be confusing of, of if and what dystonia is. But talk a little bit more to us about how dystonia can be a movement disorder by itself, but it also can be part of Parkinson's. I think that can be confusing. You're exactly right, Rachel. Uh, so dystonia is, as Dr. Kim mentioned, it's often described as sustained muscle contractions, often pulling, twisting, turning. But dystonia, and, and while dystonia can be uh, a part of Parkinson's disease, it can occur on its own. And so actually in 2013, the classification scheme was, was revised a bit uh, to help us define and describe dystonia and ultimately uh, decide upon an, an ideal treatment. So it's now just divided into two axes. Axis one is uh, de really defined as the clinical characteristics of dystonia, which means what age is the patient when they start experiencing dystonia, 
what distrib di distribution, body distribution, so what part of the body is affected. So just to go into a little bit more detail about that, there are many different parts of the body that can be affected with dystonia. For example, the eyes can be affected. Patients can have involuntary eyelid closure, which is called blepharospasm. That's a form of dystonia. Another focal dystonia, one part of the body being involved, would be the neck. So cervical dystonia, or sometimes called spasmodic torticollis, involuntary head and neck turning or pulling. So focal dystonias are really just one part of the body that are affected. If we have multiple parts of the body, so you know, one limb and maybe the trunk, then it's a segmental dystonia. So we define the dystonia based on the location that it occurs throughout the body. And we also describe dystonia based on its temporal uh, course. Has it, does it come and go? Has it been present for many years? Has it started acutely? The second axis that we use for the clinical uh, classification scheme is, is etiology or the cause of dystonia. We know that dystonia can be part of Parkinson's and related to other neurodegenerative diseases, but it can also be inherited or acquired. So we have to try to do our best to figure out the cause of the dystonia again so that we can effectively treat the dystonia. That's really helpful. Um, and so, Dr. Kim, I want to turn back to you now and tell us a little bit more. We're getting a lot of questions about, um, still more, what can, what can dystonia look like, especially in Parkinson's? And does everybody with Parkinson's get dystonia? So, not every patient with Parkinson's disease develops dystonia, um, but it is quite common in Parkinson's disease. One of the interesting things and kind of challenges with dystonia and Parkinson's disease is that dystonia can happen um, both due to the Parkinson's disease itself and also related to the medications. So that's kind of an, um, a challenge in managing the dystonia that happens in, in Parkinson's disease specifically, is trying to tease out whether there's a relationship to the medications, what that relationship is because that can help to guide the management of the dystonia symptoms and to treat those symptoms the most effectively. Um, Parkinson's disease, as Dr. Firstimming had mentioned, um, the dystonia um, of Parkinson's disease can affect um, various parts of the body. Commonly, we see it affecting um, the eyelids, as she had mentioned. We can also see it um, in the in the face, the muscles of the face. I think I'm not sure if everybody has access to the the slides, but we see um, in in Brian some dystonia affecting his face, which we can um, he can perhaps tell us a little bit more about. We also can see it affecting um, the limbs, particularly the feet. Um, often patients will will notice that they'll have curling of their their toes involuntarily. That can be quite uncomfortable. Um, and is a, is a common form of dystonia that we see in Parkinson's disease. So um, just to kind of recap, the, the, probably the more common in people with Parkinson's is in the legs, in the toes curling under, or the foot turning in, or the calves cramping and those sorts of things. And although it's common in Parkinson's, not every single person with Parkinson's will get dystonia. Yes, that's right. Okay. Unfortunately, many people are spared that. Great. And Brian, I want to bring you into the conversation now a little bit. We see on the screen there that it can be more common in people with young or younger onset Parkinson's, which we defined as somewhere around being diagnosed at the age of 40 or 50. And although you were kind of right on the cusp of that, you have dystonia. So tell us a little bit about your, your dystonia in Parkinson's. 
So mainly I've had the dystonia in my feet for a few years and we saw a foot doctor and, and he thought it was something else and we didn't really get it recognized as dystonia until about a year ago. Um, and then the face tugging thing, I just thought that was masking or my face when uh, when I'm more exhausted or uh, having more problems. Um, so it, it took a while for me to understand all of this was dystonia. And uh, it's it's definitely the feet are the biggest challenge. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about how it affects your feet. Do they turn in? Does it affect your walking? Is it painful? Maybe maybe help our um, audience understand a little bit more about how the dystonia um, affects you. Sure. So on my uh, feet, my toes curl in and. Uh, it's mostly my three um, smaller toes. So my, my big toe and the index toe kind of aren't curled as much, but the other three toes curl a lot. Uh, and the um, thing that I do mostly for that is I, they're very hard to move. Uh, and sometimes I feel like they're paralyzed, but my physical therapist has me put a towel on the ground or a napkin and try to curl it with my toes. Uh, and stuff like that helps me get some movement back. Um, but it makes walking difficult. Uh, recently I was training to do uh, a bike ride uh, across uh, California, and as I started to do more intense bike riding, uh, the cramping became far more severe, and I found that I did too much too fast. So um, I'm trying to figure that out and, and work it more slowly. So it certainly can affect other things. Your walking, as you said, your ability to exercise, your quality of life, and and we'll get a little bit more into the treatment. Um, but thanks for sharing your experience, and I think a lot of other people have very similar experiences as we talked about. I'd like to move into um, some of the the causes of dystonia, which isn't a simple question to answer. But oftentimes, Doctor First Dimming, we get this question: What causes dystonia? And not an easy answer. But can you help us? try to figure that out a little bit. Absolutely. You're right. It is not an easy uh, answer or a short answer, but I will try to um, be more specific to Parkinson's disease. At, um, at, in general, we, we don't fully understand the cause of dystonia. We think that uh, in, in, in relation to Parkinson's and other causes of dystonia, we, we have implicated the basal ganglia, so the structures deep within the brain that are important for movement, coordination of movement, fluidity of movement, and in uh, contributing to dystonia. And there are different, uh, there's wonderful research that's occurred and still underway and, and better kind of understanding the, the cause um, from a uh, neurochemical and um, different pathways uh, from that perspective, sort of behind the scenes. Um, but we think there might be an issue with what we call sensory motor integration and difficulty with uh, the brain sort of perceiving, repeated, uh, these repeated movements and ultimately translating into dystonia. But more specifically, with Parkinson's disease, and we can talk a little bit more about this when we come to treatment, there is often in patients that have been on levodopa therapy, 
there is often a relation to levodopa therapy in, in causing the dystonia, either too much or too little levodopa. And so um, that we may want to focus a little bit more uh, on the details of that in the, uh, when we talk more about treatment. Um, but we think that there is a contribution to the fluctuations in the levodopa levels and, uh, and the, the dystonia occurring in, in many patients uh, with, with Parkinson's disease. So it's kind of this complicated mix of um, something in the circuitry in that basal ganglia and then potentially something with the medication as well. Exactly, exactly. And we really are, uh, we're, we're able to uh, better sort of define in our patients with Parkinson's when the dystonia occurs from the, the wonderful information that our patients give us when they come and visit with us in the clinic. And they're often able to articulate when the dystonia is most bothersome in relation to their medications, which helps us guide our, our treatment strategies. So, Dr. Kim, maybe we can delve into that a little bit further because that's the last bullet point on the screen. It says, you know, in Parkinson's, dystonia can happen both when your levodopa is wearing off, when you're kind of getting to the end of a dose and your next dose of medication is scheduled, but also when your medication is working well. So that can be really tough to figure out and tough to understand. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. It is it is tough to understand, and certainly even among um, neurologists, we don't even quite understand, um, you know, the circuitry that drives that difference. But that is a phenomenon that we we see very strongly in Parkinson's disease. And as Dr. Firstimming was mentioning, um, really our um, patients themselves are, as in so many other ways, the best resource in kind of teasing this out. Um, patients will you know, often keep to a, a relatively regular schedule of their levodopa medication. And we encourage them, as with other symptoms of Parkinson's, to, to keep a diary and to kind of keep track of when they experience the dystonia together with their other symptoms. And by doing that, we're able to sometimes tease out a bit of a pattern in when the dystonia happens. When we see it working, um, when we see it happening as kind of an effect of the medication at its peak, that tends to happen pretty shortly after they take the medication. That makes sense. They might notice other um, symptoms improving with kicking in and other, um, other um, evidence that the medication is working well. That might be 30 minutes after they take that medication. And that, that kind of dystonia tends to be relatively short-lived and then kind of taper off as the medication um, levels drop in the bloodstream. Um, the other kind of dystonia that we see when the medication's wearing off, we sometimes can put that together in that it's a bit delayed after the medication's taken. And the person might start to experience other symptoms of wearing off. They might start to notice that they're stiff or slow um, or that they have tremors coming back at that, at that same time and might notice dystonia happening at that time. So if we're able to establish a, a pattern like that, then that's very helpful in um, coming up with a good plan and managing the dystonia. So as it might seem logical, if the dystonia is happening as a result of the medication wearing off, the management is, is similar to other, other problems with wearing off. We might consider giving the medication a little bit more frequently 
um, or giving a longer acting formulation of the medication. And if it's happening as a result of a kind of a peak effect of the medication, we might do the opposite. So consider a slower releasing form of levodopa, for example, um, things like that. So we really try to tailor uh, the management um, of the dystonia to, to what's happening to that particular patient. So it's a pretty complicated thing, and we'll get into a little bit more of the treatments on the next slide. But Brian, I want to bring you in again, um, because I think you talked a little bit about how levodopa maybe didn't necessarily have an effect on, on your dystonia and how you kind of tracked it and tried to figure it out. So tell us a little bit more about your experience with that. Yeah, I, uh, recently when I was at a doctor's appointment, uh, my movement disorder specialist uh, I was just needing to take my medication. I was at the end of the first dose, and I was very um, symptomatic with uh, dystonia uh, in my face and in my feet. And um, and then we had to wait an hour for somebody else to come in, so we went walking around. I took my medication uh, at the beginning of that hour, came back in, and I was still as bad as I was, um, and that was interesting because sometimes I feel at least my face is affected by the um, medication that when I'm off, my face tends to pull more or uh, when I'm towards the end of the day and more exhausted. Um, but I've not yet been able to really figure out, it seems like the feet are uh, in a dystonia way uh, more often than not. So I, I've yet to figure out if it's medication affected or not, but it seems like the face at least is towards the end of the dose. And Dr. First Dimming, does that happen in some people where they just can't see a relation to their levodopa medication? They just have dystonia and Parkinson's? Unfortunately, yes. And I say unfortunately because it makes it more difficult for us uh, to, to come up with a treatment. It's certainly still possible to come up with a treatment. We just have to get a little bit more creative. Um, and when it is when we can implicate the dystonia in relation to the levodopa levels, then as, as Dr. Kim nicely uh, described, we can modify the dosing intervals or, or the dose itself. We have ways that we can try to minimize the, the symptoms. But but if it doesn't really seem to be correlated with the levodopa, uh, then, we, then we have to come up with different uh, treatment strategies. The good news is there are other treatment strategies, so, so we can uh, start to use those. Great. And um, since we're on the topic of medications, we've got a question. Are there other medications that cause dystonia? Dr. Kim, can you answer that one? Sometimes we can see dystonia happening um, with medications other than levodopa. Among our Parkinson's patients, um, levodopa is the most common culprit, I would say. But other medications in that um, dopamine pathway, so um, the dopamine agonist, for example, sometimes can cause a bit of dystonia. Levodopa, I would say, is the most common, though. And I'll just and add to that. There are medications that our Parkinson's patients usually are not taking, but they could be that are sort of blocking the dopamine receptors, and uh, those sorts of medications are even rarely uh, some, some of the antidepressants and some other medications can contribute uh, to dystonia. Even some of the antiemetics or medications used for nausea can cause dystonia. So it is a, a great point in that we need to always look at the medication list and make sure there's nothing that we are doing uh, as physicians and treating our patients and contributing to the dystonia. 
And just going to keep going with a couple questions here because so many good ones are coming in. Um, we're getting questions about how does dystonia evolve? Does it always get worse? Does it always change body parts? Brian mentioned that it started in his feet and now he's got it in his face. Dr. Fursimming? Well, it it does it does it can evolve over time. If it occurs in one limb, for example, as Dr. Kim mentioned earlier, it may occur, say, in the foot. There may be some curling of the toes or inversion of the foot. That's not terribly uncommon in the early morning hours when when the the levodopa levels may have worn off. It, it if it occurs in the foot, it doesn't necessarily mean that down the road it will occur in in the upper extremity or in the face. So it's not a given that it will spread. In other types of dystonia, and in, in the, what we call generalized dystonias that are inherited, it will continue to often it will start in one limb and it will continue to evolve and spread throughout the body, in fact, uh, affect other limbs and the trunk. But in Parkinson's, that's not a given. It may stay, it may be restricted to one limb uh, or, or you know, maybe both feet, but it does not absolutely evolve over time. Doesn't always necessarily get worse or change body yeah. position. It, exactly. It doesn't always change body positions. It, it can get worse over time if it's not treated, or we might find that, for example, if we are injecting the patient with botulinum toxin, which we'll talk about, that you know the dystonia is better while the medicine is actually working, but then worsens at the end of the uh, treatment effect. So it may fluctuate in its severity. And two more questions. One specific to Parkinson's, Dr. Kim. A lot of people asking about stomach cramping and pain in Parkinson's. Is that dystonia? So people can have um, effects on the abdominal muscles um, themselves. Sometimes um, patients can have a bending forward of the posture because of um, a, a true dystonia affecting the actual abdominal wall muscles. Um, the kind of a kind of stomach discomfort itself wouldn't be a classic um, true dystonia, but that can be um, a, a similar symptom in that it can be um, a symptom of Parkinson's disease that is affected by the levodopa and might fluctuate um, together with the levodopa. It also can probably be hard to figure these things out a lot of times, right? I mean, there are a lot of other stomach and digestive issues that can happen in Parkinson's, right? Constipation or slowed yeah. stomach emptying, feeling full or those sorts of things. And so probably it's hard to sometimes parse out what's what. And so maybe keeping a log or determining if levodopa helps your symptoms, if you have cramping, those sorts of things, would those be helpful? Yes, absolutely. That would be helpful. And also the levodopa itself, of course, can have um, side effects affecting the stomach with nausea being a very common one. So um, yeah, as, as with all things, it can be a bit complicated, but keeping kind of careful track of the symptoms and their timing can be very helpful in, in coming up with a good solution for them. Great. And then last one before we move on, Dr. First Stimming, how do you know if dystonia is dystonia, the movement disorder, or if it's Parkinson's? Somebody wrote in they have cervical dystonia. How do they know if they're going to stay with cervical dystonia or they have Parkinson's? And this is just the beginning of their Parkinson's. Mm, good question. 
So uh, usually, as was mentioned earlier, if dystonia occurs um, in patients with, with Parkinson's and unrelated to, say, the levodopa levels or uh, in folks that have lived with Parkinson's for a while, it's likely part of their, their Parkinson's disease and their motor manifestations of Parkinson's disease. There are patients with young onset dystonia, as you mentioned, excuse me, young onset Parkinson's, as you mentioned, in which they may be symptomatic in their 40s. And these folks may have dystonia early on, often when they have dystonia early on prior to receiving a diagnosis of Parkinson's, it's in the limb. So most often it's in the foot and they have something called kinesogenic dystonia, which is a fancy term for dystonia or cramping uh, of their, their foot and their toes when running, when moving. Uh, and so these individuals may have foot dystonia or cramping and are subsequently diagnosed with Parkinson's. It is within the realm of possibility, I suppose, that someone with another type of focal dystonia, like a cervical dystonia, or neck pulling, twisting, turning, could be diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, but it's less likely. So if a patient, like I said, already has a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease and they've lived with Parkinson's disease for a few years or so, and then develop, they develop dystonia, it's likely all related. But if someone has a focal dystonia, say a cervical dystonia where the neck and the, the head is involved, then they, they may just have, they may have isolated cervical dystonia and assuming they don't have any other neurologic changes on their exam, they may only have cervical dystonia and it may be unrelated to any possibility of a developing Parkinson's disease. So a tough question to answer, but keep close follow-up with your doctor watching for other signs and symptoms of Parkinson's, probably the, the best thing to do. Yes, exactly. And right. The, the diagnosis, as you know, of Parkinson's disease in general is really a clinical diagnosis. So it's based on the neurologic exam, uh, the findings uh, that when we ask patients to do finger tapping and walking and assess their tone. So it's really based on the neurologic exam and the history, the information that we get from our patients when we ask them lots of questions. <laughs> Great. So let's move on. We've already talked a little bit about treatments for dystonia, but let's delve into those a little bit more. And Dr. Kim, I'll start with you because you talked a little bit about the medications, but tell us a little bit more about the treatment for, for dystonia. And maybe we start with medications or there are other things that we incorporate. How do we treat dystonia? Yeah, sure. That's yeah. a great question. And there are many um, great treatments available. And one thing that I'll mention kind of right from the get-go, as with many things um, in Parkinson's disease, um, it takes sometimes a little bit of trial and error with the available agents to find, kind of find the best solution for each patient. Um, but that's, that's quite normal and um, sort of par for the course. It's something that, of course, can be a little frustrating for people um, when there's a bit of a delay in coming up with a, a final plan, but um, you know, often it takes a little bit of tailoring to get things individualized um, for each patient. And so with that being said, um, as I had mentioned, really the mainstay um, of dystonia management, medical management in, in Parkinson's patients does tend to be this kind of modification or adjustment of the levodopa regimen um, if we're able to tease out a, a good pattern um, of the symptoms relative to the levodopa. So those are the things that I had mentioned. Um, in the case of these more peak dose dystonias, things like dose reduction, 
switching to um, a uh, slower acting formulation of the levodopa um, or even taking the medication with perhaps some food in the belly to slow down the absorption, sort of um, small tricks that can slow down the peak dose of the um, levodopa in the bloodstream and then improve the symptoms of the dystonia in that way. And then with the more off kind of dystonia being managed with um, increased dose frequency or uh, consideration of longer-acting formulations of the levodopa. And often um, uh, we can achieve pretty good improvement in the dystonia symptoms by just adjusting the levodopa medication and the, the schedule of that um, to improve quality of life quite a bit. There are, though, other medications, um, oral medications, that are available for the treatment of dystonia. And um, as with all medications, we need to be a little bit careful as far as the side effects that these might cause. So we, we do try to be cautious and start with low doses of these medications and, and kind of um, monitor closely as we go along. Um, so I'll mention um, both the benefits of these medications and some of their possible side effects as we go along. Um, the first class um, and really kind of a very tried and true class of medications for the treatment of dystonia are anticholinergic medications. And these include things like trihexyphenidol uh, with a trade name Artane, um, which can be um, very effective in treating especially um, dystonia that's affecting multiple body parts, um, more of uh, generalized dystonias. Um, these, this class of medications can have some side effects like um, drowsiness, a little bit of um, trouble with concentration, and also things like dry mouth. So um, we do monitor for the side effects um, and consider things like dose, dose reduction if people develop them. Um, sometimes um, the older that a person gets, the more sensitive that they might be to these kinds of side effects, so we keep a close eye out for them. Another class of medications are the benzodiazepine medications, um, including the medication clonazepam. And um, that medication um, has a kind of dampening effect on the activity in the nervous system in general and, and can be very effective in treating the symptoms of dystonia. And then again, especially in the case of somebody has a, a dystonia that's affecting multiple body parts, um, more of a generalized dystonia picture. Um, and then with this medication, we, we again keep an eye out for causing drowsiness or trouble with concentration and um, tailor that um, regimen if we need to. Um, again, that's a medication that as, as we get a little bit older might be um, a little bit more um, difficult to tolerate in terms of that drowsiness. So we just monitor closely for that. And then the final class of medications that we um, use are muscle relaxants, like the medication um, baclofen or flexoril. And um, again, sometimes we can see a little bit of drowsiness with that medication. Um, but all of these agents can be effective um, in and of themselves in treating dystonia and um, also normally in, in combination. So it might take um, one or more of these agents. Um, in a tailored regimen for the patient to, to get a, um, a good um, balance in symptom control and side effects. Um, Dr. First-Dimming, I think, had mentioned as well 
the possibility of botulinum toxin, which um, is a real mainstay of treatment in um, the treatment of dystonia. And um, botulinum toxin is um, a injectable form of medication. It's actually um, a toxin that's formed naturally by a type of bacteria, um, but um, fortunately for neurologists and for patients, it has an effect in slowing down the communication between muscles and nerves, so um, decreasing the activity of the muscles that are overactive in dystonia. And that kind of treatment can be very helpful, um, especially when there's one particular body part that's affected by the dystonia. So for example, um, Brian had mentioned that his toes tend to curl under, um, especially at the end of his doses. And we're sometimes able to achieve a very good relief in that by um, injecting just those specific muscles that are affected um, by that very focal dystonia. So if somebody, for example, had, um, like you said, one specific muscle, maybe their arm or their toes that are affected, you might inject Botox and you would have to do that every maybe three months or four months because the effect wears off, right? And then you would also potentially be adjusting medication or giving them a medication on top of that, depending on what their dystonia was like and what their specific treatment regimen was like and maybe also what other medical problems they have what other medications they're on, what other symptoms they have with their Parkinson's? Yes, that's exactly right. Everything would be really tailored to exactly the other medications that the person takes um, and other medical problems that they might have. I'll mention that sometimes with um, Botox injections alone, we're actually able to achieve um, enough symptom relief that um, the person doesn't need additional oral medications. Um, so that's that's one great benefit of the the Botox injections for the right patient that we're able to achieve relief in their symptoms without causing systemic side effects. So side effects affecting um, you know concentration or or other body systems. So for the right patient, they can be very effective. But as you said, yes, in combination with adjustments of other medications. And thank you so much for that comprehensive um, discussion of the medications and the, the Botox. Brian, I want to talk to you a little bit about the therapies because you mentioned physical therapy for your um, toe curling under. And um, we can also use occupational therapy or even speech therapy when we have facial dystonia. Tell us a little bit more about how um, the exercises that you've done and how that's worked for you. Sure. Um... So I, I've and I've done the medications too. I've had uh, Botox injections in the feet, um, and they've they've helped a, a little bit. But I I tend to lean more towards what I can do myself uh, in the lifestyle change, because uh, we have so many medications on us. Um, so the physical therapy that I mentioned before, with the towel or a napkin on the floor and curling it with the toe. Um, with my face, uh, they recommend the speech therapy or just doing, you know, oh and ah and, um, you know, moving it more and stretching it uh, and, and doing that when I'm exercising anyway, even if I'm not having the dystonia at that time, just to keep it more loose or uh, limber. Um, and then I also do, uh, aside from my walking, which isn't as much because of the dystonia, but the bike riding, and then I do swim therapy. 
uh, pool therapy, and I, I find that to be really uh, beneficial because I can stretch the feet better in the water, uh, and then just even the resistance of trying to kick and um, trying to work the muscles more than I would if I were just on land uh, seems beneficial. So it's really a consistency of doing a lot of these various therapies, uh, and they all definitely have gains. Uh, it's just keeping it consistent and working at it that makes it uh, long-term beneficial. So, Dr. Firstening, physical therapists, they not only can give you specific exercises that are tailored to help with the muscles that are involved in dystonia, but they also can help you tailor a regular exercise regimen that might help with, with dystonia. Are there other exercises that you know of that might be helpful for dystonia, our audience is asking? Well, I mean, I think as as Brian nicely described, it's it's really about finding an exercise regimen that works for you and your lifestyle. I think uh, spending time in the pool is a fantastic idea. You're not fighting gravity, and you can really stretch and and move with confidence and often without pain. Um, and I would definitely agree that working with our, our physical and occupational therapist is a fantastic way to identify different types of stretches that are safe and that will hopefully be helpful in minimizing the discomfort that's often uh, part of dystonia. And continuing on the kind of non-medication strategies, we see on their complementary therapies, acupuncture and massage. Can you tell us anything about acupuncture for dystonia? So acupuncture has been studied a bit in dystonia and in other neurologic conditions. Um, not quite as much as, as we would have, we don't have quite as much evidence-based medicine as we would like uh, in the realm of acupuncture and specifically dystonia related to Parkinson's disease. But in general, we there are reports of acupuncture helping with especially the pain related to dystonia. Not everyone with dystonia has pain, but often pain is a common uh, aspect of dystonia. And so in, in working with my patients, if they've found someone that can provide acupuncture and they're uh, happy with that with individual, um, then I think it's reasonable to give give it a try. Um, often we'll use acupuncture in conjunction with more kind of traditional pharmacologic therapies. Uh, and the same is true for massage therapy. It really, because Parkinson's, we all know Parkinson's disease is, is multifaceted, that patients have motor and non-motor symptoms, the treatment regimen is, is the same. We use medications, we have effective medications, which is why we love treating Parkinson's disease, but we often need to also rely heavily on non-pharmacologic options and, and really kind of think outside the box. And um, as long as we feel confident that, that the therapy, uh, non-pharmacologic therapy is not going to be harmful, I think it's absolutely, and that's including to your, to your uh, bank account, so as long as it's not too costly, um, then I think it's worth exploring and figuring out a regimen that, that works to minimize the discomfort and to optimize quality of life. Just one last question along those lines, and maybe, Brian, you were going to add on this. Um, what about, you know, can people do anything with diet or hydration or electrolytes? Sometimes you hear about magnesium, or I even had people who would eat tablespoons of mustard to help with their dystonia. Um, Dr. First Imming or Brian, anything that you have to add on that? I was just going to mention something uh, about massage therapy. So um, if you want to go with this line first, and then I can come back because um, I'm not sure about nutrition outside of, I definitely know that I need to keep more hydrated and that helps. 
Yeah, exactly. And I'll let you talk about your experience with massage. I couldn't uh, agree more. We are always reminding our patients to stay hydrated, especially here in Houston where it's far too warm. Uh, but but hydration is, is really key because if folks are dehydrated, they're at risk not only for potentially worsening of their dystonia, but also potentially a drop in their blood pressure upon standing or orthostatic hypotension. So it is very important to stay hydrated. Some folks anecdotally have found that, that things like magnesium will help a bit. Sometimes uh, it you know, really doesn't, doesn't make an impact and it get, we have to get back to, to levodopa and, and the relation to levodopa. But I, I absolutely agree that, that staying hydrated is, is extremely important. And then, Brian, if you want to tell us about your experience, your personal experience with massage, that would be lovely. Yes. I purchased a, a foot massage thing. I don't recall the brand name of it or anything, but it's basically where you uh, you have socks on and you insert your feet in there. And it does, through roller massage and pressure, um, work the feet pretty well, and you can change the levels. And uh, at first, I just thought, ah, that's not doing well. And then when I put it on the high mode and I found it doing pressure and squeezing the toes and then releasing them and doing the same with the ankles and then rolling the bottom of the feet. It was absolutely wonderful because I got more circulation in my feet than I'd felt in a long time. And I think there's a great benefit to that. And I'm not one much to have somebody go give me a massage. That's not kind of mm-hmm. my nature. So this thing was perfect. And and so I'm excited to see what this does as we go down the line with it. But I wanted to share that because I, I did definitely see some benefit from it. That's great. And it's, again, it's all about finding what works for you. Um, and lastly, Dr. Kim, I'd like to turn back to you to tell us a little bit about deep brain stimulation. This is a surgical therapy that's used in people with dystonia, the movement disorder, and people with dystonia and Parkinson's disease. Tell us a little bit about it. And as you do, we've also gotten a question about what's the target in, in dystonia versus Parkinson's? Where do you put it in the brain? So do do address that in your answer, please. Yeah, absolutely. So deep brain stimulation um, as you are well aware, um, had, has really changed um, the treatment of Parkinson's disease um, and dystonia dramatically. Um, as you mentioned, it is still surgery. So um, the first thing to mention, I think, is just that it's not really not for everyone, but for the right patient who is a good surgical candidate and whose symptoms stand a very good chance of improving with the surgery, um, it can have a very good effect on dystonia, as with other symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Um, and as you mentioned, it is also has been used for primary forms of dystonia as well. And I'm glad that um, our astute audience member had asked about the target that's used in, deep, um, in dystonia, because it, it is um, a crucial question about, about this procedure in general. The target that's used um, for dystonia is the globus pallidus, which is used um, as well for other symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Um, there has been work done looking at other targets, um, traditional targets of deep brain stimulation in dystonia, um, including the subthalamic nucleus. But um, currently, the the strongest evidence is um, for the most improvement with the globus pallidus. But um, I would say that 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 question is still under investigation. Um, One thing I'll mention with the deep brain stimulation is that for the symptom of dystonia, it's it's a little bit different than with some of the other symptoms of Parkinson's uh, disease or or even other symptoms that are treated with DBS. 
um, in that there is um, classically a bit of a lag in improvement in the dystonia symptoms um, following the procedure and following changes in programming. Um, and that can actually be up to um, two or three months. So patients won't see a, necessarily a dramatic of improvement in their symptoms um, immediately after the surgery or immediately after they leave the office, but it's a more gradual process, which um, gives us some clues um, as, as to um, what's, what's the driving factor for the improvement is. So probably there are some, some changes in the connectivity in the brain circuits um, that are happening as a result of the surgery that are allowing that person to gradually improve over time. I would also just like to add, if you don't mind, to deep brain stimulation, I absolutely agree with everything that Dr. Kim mentioned. DBS is an effective symptomatic therapy that was approved back in 1997 for the, by the FDA for the treatment of, of Parkinson's disease. It is a very effective therapy, and it essentially does what levodopa does for you. Um, but I would like to mention, as, it, as is mentioned in the slide, that DBS is not necessarily for everything. So the best predictor of a favorable outcome from DBS is uh, appropriate patient selection. And so as movement disorder docs, we want to ensure that our patients have a robust and sustained response to levodopa and that their motor scores improve on something called the Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale by at least 30%. We also want to make sure that cognitively our patients are in good shape. So we'll ask our patients to pursue neurocognitive testing uh, to ensure that they are strong cognitive candidates. But if a patient has dystonia and they have uh, Parkinson's and they appear to be good candidates, then I absolutely agree with this, Dr. Kim that it can be very, a very effective therapy. One of the places where we're working toward um, new and improved therapies, we're trying to improve upon DBS for dystonia and Parkinson's. And uh, if we move to the last slide, we see where research is working to not only improve surgical options, but also medication options, improve our levodopa delivery, but also new drugs for new targets, and also a better understanding of what's going on with that brain circuitry in the basal ganglia that overlaps with dystonia and Parkinson's. So a lot of research into better understandings and better treatments. Um, but I'd like to spend um, a little bit more time just getting to the questions because there are so many that are coming in. So if we can just move to, to more questions here. Dr. First Stimming, we talked a lot about a, a couple different types of, of dystonia. We talked about the eyelid closure, about cervical dystonia. We're getting questions about specifically how are those treated? So great questions. So uh, mostly when we're dealing with a focal dystonia, and that would be essentially one um, region of the body, so the neck or the eyes or the hand, arm, or maybe the foot, uh, then we the, the really the first line treatment would be botulinum toxin, as Dr. Kim mentioned earlier. We want to, and in conjunction with likely non-pharmacologic therapies as well, the physical therapy, occupational therapy, and, and those sorts of options. But really for focal dystonias, assuming that there is no obvious correlation with levodopa and modulating the levodopa levels, botulinum toxin injections are really the treatment of choice. As Dr. Kim mentioned, the nice thing about botulinum toxin injections is really there are very little systemic side effects. Most of the side effects are related to the location that we inject. 
the mechanism of action of, of botulinum toxin is to essentially weaken overactive muscles. And so if we, and, and when we start injecting, as Dr. Kim mentioned, we'll often, it's a, it's a process. We may inject a lower dose to start for the for initial round of injections and see how patients do. And then over time, we may modify the, the, the location of the injections or the dose to optimize the patient's response. So for a focal, again, a focal dystonia, probably botulinum toxin is the, the, the first choice. And for a more generalized type of dystonia, or if we have various parts of the body affected, then we need to get more creative with the oral medications and, again, with non-pharmacologic strategies as well. And Dr. Kim, lots of questions about what are the potential risks of Botox? Yeah, that's a great question and one that patients often come in to the clinic with. As Dr. Furstemming had mentioned, it works um, really by weakening the muscle that's injected. So um, one of the uh, most common side effects with um, the injection can be that the person experiences some weakness in that limb, which might um, affect their ability to use that body part. So we try to shoot for kind of um, the perfect dose at which the patient has relief in the dystonia without experiencing enough weakness that they're affected um, in their everyday life. Um, sometimes that takes a little bit of trial and error to, to identify what that dose is. And um, there can actually be a little bit of variability between people on, on what exactly is, is the best dose. Um, other um, risks of the Botox injections are similar to other um, injections um, in the body. Anytime there's a puncture to the skin, there's a risk of having um, bruising at that site. So in, in an arm or leg, that's often not a concern. Sometimes we will do injections in the face, such as the eyelids for blepharospasm, and then that can be a little bit more bothersome cosmetically. Um, and anytime there's a puncture to the skin as well, there can be a risk for having um, infection. However, the procedure is then sterile with sterilized um, equipment and um, sterilized medication, so that, that risk tends to be quite low. Um, I'll mention as well that the nice thing about the Botox is that the effects do wear off um, within about three months. So um, that means that the injection does have to be repeated every three months, as you had mentioned, but also that um, if we do have a problem with maybe a little more weakness than we had been shooting for, then that weakness will wear off over time, and then with the next dose, we can adjust for that. And Dr. First, giving a practical question, does insurance or Medicare pay for Botox? That is a very important question because mm -hmm. Botox or botulinum toxin, Botox is not the only uh, botulinum toxin that we use, but um, uh, is, is very expensive. So we definitely want to ask that question. And the good news is it is usually covered, but I say usually because uh, never, never say never, but uh, by Medicare and most commercial uh, insurance plans. But we, we actually have a full-time uh, employee here that, that her, uh, solely works on, on botulinum Botulinum toxin and ensuring that it's approved. It is usually must be approved through a specialty pharmacy, at least in our clinic, and then the specialty pharmacy mails the Botox to our clinic uh, or the botulinum toxin. Like I said, different there are different brand names, and then there's uh, usually a fee for the actual procedure. So for the physician that's injecting the botulinum toxin, uh, we we bill for that uh, service as well. But more often than not, we uh, are able to get the botulinum toxin uh, covered. Um, at least a majority of the cost, um, which makes us happy and our patients. Great. 
And Dr. Kim, a question from Pola. What um, may, might trigger dystonia or make it worse? So things like anxiety or stress or fatigue, do those things bring on dystonia or exacerbate the symptom? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And um, absolutely the case that kind of anything that um, create stress on the body as a whole can worsen the symptoms of an underlying dystonia, whether it's a, um, an independent dystonia or the dystonia that we see with Parkinson's disease. So think patients will often comment to us that if they're feeling fatigued, not sleeping well, that they'll notice that their dystonia and other symptoms um, might worsen in that period. Even um, being sick with um, something affecting the body, like um, a flu or something like that can also cause a person's symptoms to worsen. So kind of the, the lifestyle, um, um, healthy lifestyle that Brian had mentioned is, is really important in, in managing those things. And Brian, anything you would add from your personal experience? Um, yeah, definitely when, when I'm stressed or when I'm uh, uh, exhausted or feeling apprehensive, uh, the symptoms get worse. Perfect example, this weekend I ended up in the ER for a silly reason and uh as they were stitching me up i definitely had <laughs> more uh dystonia in my face and in my hands uh it wasn't necessarily the pained expression but just kind of the stress of the situation i think and some definition questions, Dr. Firstimming. One is, um, we kind of use this word cramping to talk about dystonia, but somebody asks, how do you differentiate a cramp from dystonia? Ooh, that's, that's a tough question <laughs> because there certainly is overlap. And I think it really sort of gets back to, to kind of better understanding and describing, more importantly, to your physician what you're experiencing and when you're experiencing it. Dystonia is really, by definition, as we mentioned, sustained contraction of various muscle groups, and so it is a form of cramping, but not everything that cramps is, is of course, dystonia. So, so it really depends on your neurologic exam and the information that you can provide to your uh, physician to your neurologist about when the cramping occurs and where it occurs uh, that hopefully can help us put all the pieces together and determine whether or not it's, it is actually dystonia. Taking oh, a picture or a video or things like that, does that ever help you as a physician? Asking your patients Absolutely. to take a, yeah. Yeah, that's a fantastic idea. It it really can help because it's more more often than not, uh, everything is is pretty perfect when our when our patients come to visit us in clinic, and uh, and that can be very frustrating. It's just like taking your car to the shop. And so, if you can bring some uh, information from your spouse, and or even better, uh, a visual and a video or a picture, that that's fantastic. It's more more information for us to try to help help our patients. And Dr. Kim. Oh, you took the words right out of my mouth, actually. Oh. I was going to <laughs> mention the same thing. Um, another thing that can be confusing, and sometimes video can help with this, too, are pictures. What's the difference between dystonia and dyskinesia, Dr. Kim? Yeah, so they are on a continuum, so um, they, they can definitely um, be confusing. Um, dyskinesias are more typically um, the kind of excessive and sometimes repetitive movements that can occur um, more often as a side effect of the levodopa itself. Um, dyskinesias, like dystonias, can um, occur 
both as um, a direct effect of the peak dose of the levodopa and then um, more uncommonly as the levodopa is wearing off. But we think that they're um, in the setting of Parkinson's disease kind of on a spectrum. Um, and one clue for that is the fact that they do kind of behave in this similar way in relationship to the levodopa. Very helpful. I think that's a common uh, point of, of confusion for people with Parkinson's and, and sometimes even their doctors. So it, so it can be tough to, to parse out. With that, we're wrapping up. So I'd like to give you each an opportunity to, to say one final thing about dystonia or Parkinson's or research to our audience. So uh, Brian, can I start with you? Um, yeah, well, the one thing I was just thinking as I was listening to this last question is it, it's definitely with me because uh, I do get a lot of the cramping and I have dyskinesias. And the dystonia for me is more that prolonged um, cramping or curling. Um, but no, I think this discussion has been fantastic. I've uh, really appreciated listening to everybody and I've, I've learned a great deal through it. And I'm really glad that you guys have done this. Thank you. Thank you. And Dr. Kim? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I just want to emphasize that there's really great um, treatments available for dystonia, as bothersome as it can be. Um, and with good tailoring, we're really able to come up um, with good plans that really improve the quality of life. And Dr. First Dimming. Yes, and, and I would agree um, with everything that's been said. Thank you again for having me. And just I would like to stress you know, the importance of working with your physician. We have uh, fantastic patients that uh, we are able to work with. And it really, when it comes to PD, Parkinson's disease, it's, it's certainly not a sprint. It's a marathon. And so it's about working closely with your team. It, it definitely takes a team uh, and, and providing as much information as possible so that we can work together to try to improve uh, our patient symptoms and optimize their quality of life. Well, thank you, Brian, Dr. Kim, and Dr. First Dimming for sharing your expertise with us today, and thank you, everyone, for joining us. Mark your calendars for our next webinar on October 18th, where we'll be discussing off episodes in Parkinson's where your symptoms can reemerge or not be as well controlled. We'll have staff behind the scenes to answer your questions live then. I'm Rachel Dolan, Vice President of Medical Communications at the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.